Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here are today's presenters, Emmanuel and Liesl Higgins. The talk this morning is titled, The Way That Leads to Peace. We want peace, don't we? We want an inner peace. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 John. 1 John, chapter 1. And... First John's one of my favorite books of the Bible. It's simple, it's easy to understand, it's powerful, and it's practical. In First John chapter 1, and reading there in verse 3, John tells us, he says, That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his son Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful verse, and it's John's desire in the book of John for us to experience this word called fellowship. Just think about that word, fellowship. He wants us to have fellowship with one another and fellowship with God. Isn't that incredible? He's having fellowship with God, and he wants us to experience that fellowship as well as fellowship with one another. And he's saying, this is why I'm writing to you. This is the purpose of my book. This is my message, that we can have fellowship. And then verse 4, he says, These things write we to you, that your joy may be full. Don't we want joy, fullness of joy? And peace comes right along with that as well. When we have this fellowship with God and one another, we have peace, we have joy. And... To summarize the rest of that chapter, he goes on, he says in verse 5, you see there that God is light and him is no darkness. In verse 6, he says, if we walk in darkness, we don't have fellowship. Verse 7, he says, but if we walk in the light, then we have fellowship. Isn't that beautiful? If we walk in the light, we have this fellowship. And not only that, what does it say in verse 7? And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Amen, that's what we want. Fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleansing us from all sin. And it happens, it says there, when we walk in the light. I want to walk in the light so I can have that, don't you? And it goes on, so what does it mean to walk in the light? Verse 8, it contrasts that with saying, if we say that we have what? No sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But verse 9, but if we... Confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So in verse chapter 1 here of verse 1, there's a contrast, light and darkness. When we're in the light, we have fellowship and joy. Beautiful. When we're in darkness, we don't have fellowship and we don't have that joy. What does that mean to walk in the light and walk in darkness? Thank you. What do you see there in verse 9? If we what? Confess our sins. Is that what it says? He forgives us and cleanses us. That, brothers and sisters, friends, is what it means to walk in the light. When we've got sin in our life, in our character, what we like to do, we like to hide it in the dark. When no one knows about it, just keep it to ourselves. I'm doing something I know might not be right, but no one else knows about it, so it's in the dark. In the book of John, John says, this is not 1 John, but the, the Gospel of John, 
He says, light is coming to this world, but men loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. So when we have sin in our life, the natural thing to do is to go and hide it in the dark, where no one can see it. And you know what? When we do that, it's impossible to have fellowship. When there's sin in our life, if I've got something in my life that I know is wrong, it's going to come between me and my wife. Even though I don't want it to, it's just, I've got to protect myself because I know I've got sin. It's an unconscious thing even. And it will hinder human relationships and human fellowship. But when we walk in the light, it's bringing the sin out. It's not hiding it anymore. That's what it means to confess your sin, is to like be honest, be open, open all the corners of your mind and to God and, and confess all things to Him. And be honest and frank and not hide anything. And when we do that, we're completely honest and open. We've got nothing to hide. We walk in the light. We're honest with God. He forgives us then of our sins. And we have fellowship. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that what we want, brothers and sisters? Let's search our hearts and see, as David said, if there's any wicked way in us, and pray that God can lead us in the way everlasting. When we forsake sin and we do, we follow God with, with an earnest, sincere heart, there's nothing that's going to stop us from having fellowship with one another. Even even if it doesn't matter if we see some things differently, some things will always be seen differently. But if we with an honest heart come to God and confess our sins and walk in the light, we have fellowship and joy. And I think that's what the brotherhood of, of Christianity, the sisterhood, you know, the family of God is to, is all about. It's about pursuing holiness without which no man can see God. I think that's our desire and that's our, our, our the burden of our heart here at camp. And that's the way that leads to peace. Amen? That's the way that leads to peace. But we're going to talk this morning about some things that rob us of our peace, some things that have, we can relate to in our own experience and I hope you can relate to as well. So peace is something we all desire. Amen? We desire peace and rest. You know, we're in a conflict in this world, but we desire that life of peace, joy, satisfaction. The question is, why is it that it seems to be so few in this world <clears throat> that have genuine, abiding, and satisfying peace? It's a rare thing, isn't it? So we're all searching after this peace. It's a global phenomenon. Jesus gives us this beautiful promise. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. What does that tell you? There's two kinds of peace. Jesus gives you a peace, and the world gives you peace. Does it? Well, it says there's a kind of peace that the world's giving. What kind of peace is that? Peace? Like this. Jesus came down to the world, and he lived a pure life. But the Pharisees and the, the, the leaders of Israel hated him. Why did they hate him? Because he spoke out against their pride, their arrogance, their hypocrisy in the church. He rebuked that. He rebuked it silently even by his own life. He rebuked it more silently than he rebuked it vocally. But they felt just rebuked in his presence. And, but imagine if Jesus had come, like they wanted him to, and said to them, Guys, I'm going to be the king of Israel. We're going to rebuke the Romans and, and you're going to be my helpers. 
They would have loved him, right? He could have kept the peace by doing that. But he said, I come not to bring peace, but a sword in that sense. So worldly peace is peace that appeases to our human nature. It pleases our pride. It makes me feel comfortable. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel like I can sin and it's okay. Actually, it's, it's all right. It's that kind of peace that appeals to our carnal, sinful human heart. That's what the world gives. But that peace leaves us it's like an itch. The more you itch it, the itchier it gets and the worse it gets. And it's never truly satisfying. The peace that Christ gives is completely contrary to that. Completely different. It doesn't. The peace of Christ lays the glory of man in the dust. And from there, in the dust, it speaks to us and says, I gave my son for you. And in Christ, we find that peace and that rest. Have we experienced the peace, the unruffled, blissful, sweet surrender in Christ that he wants us to? We're told that those who in everything make God first and last and best are, we all know this statement, the happiest people in the world. Smiles and sunshine are not banished from their countenance. Don't you love this? Those who make God first and last and best are the happiest people in the world. The question that we wonder sometimes is, how come there's so many people, even amongst those who maybe claim to be Christians, that aren't in this category? What is it that robs us of our peace? Mm, that's a very good question. We shouldn't walk around like we're in a funeral train, amen? We have every reason to be joyful and happy. What's some things that can take away that joy? Like, I don't deny that we all desire it and long for it, but some things can take it away from us. And we're going to look at a couple of those things. The first one, unfulfilled duties. As we were thinking about it and reflecting on our own lives, this is something that came to mind. Duties for us as Christians, duties in the home, things that, that we, we know need to be done when we feel like, I don't feel like that, we neglect obvious duty, it takes away our peace. It robs us of our peace. Yes, yeah, so there's a lot of things that we could touch on in the subject of peace and happiness. And we've just narrowed it down to three things in particular that we've found directly can rob of our peace. And with the subject of unfulfilled duties, this is something Emmanuel's really inspired me with. A couple of months ago, he was talking to me about how much satisfaction we have when there are no unfulfilled duties in our life. And the next day, that was just like ringing through my mind for much of the day, no unfulfilled duties. And so I determined that whatever duty came to my mind, before I had time to decide whether I wanted to do it or whether I liked to do it, I just was going to get in and do it. And I found myself getting inspired to do all sorts of things that I'd neglected, like student invoices, which I don't normally love doing, and some cleaning jobs, which I'd neglected. But by the end of the day, my peace and joy and satisfaction were well and truly payment. And I found that not only that, but God blessed even in work opportunities. As a result of that, God really blessed even in work opportunities. 
And to me, there is nothing more free than a conscience which is in harmony with what it knows, a conscience that is at peace. And I can personally testify when we choose not to neglect duties, when we choose not to neglect the things that we know we should be doing, whether that's in physical lines or in spiritual lines especially, the peace, the rewards, the joy, the satisfaction are priceless. And so the question comes to us, if fulfilling all the duties that we know can bring us so much satisfaction and joy, why do we put things off? For example, in our spiritual life, when we know, this is a fact, that if we just surrender our lives to Christ and live his life, he will give us, it will give us more joy than our little hands can hold. Or when we know in our physical life that in fulfilling some duty, we will feel so relieved that it's done, it will be a weight off our mind, we'll be so glad it's done. Why do we put things off? Sometimes it seems like half the battle is just in the process of starting. For example, I knew that I should be exercising more, and I had been reading in one of Dr. Darren Morton's books about exercise, and he uses that analogy that I think probably everybody in this room is familiar with, how when we're filling up a jar, if we want to fill it to its maximum capacity, we have to start with the big rocks and then the smaller ones and then the sand at the end in the spaces. And he was saying that because health affects like every part of our life, that it really should be a priority and one of the larger rocks. And he said somewhere else that we should just go outside and exercise for two minutes. And if we enjoyed it, we can continue. And if we didn't, well, of course, we were at liberty to stop. And you know what happens. People get outside, and they start exercising, and they think, I've just got two minutes. Before they know it, they're like having a wonderful time. They're enjoying their fresh air. They're feeling wonderful. And 20 minutes has passed or something, and they forgot all about the two minutes. And I found it to be true as well. The battle just is starting. The picture on the screen here is a picture of Cedar Vale, and it doesn't really do it justice, but it's really beautiful rainforest over, over that walk. And it's just a beautiful mountain surrounded by the rainforest. And my little exercise routine would be running down the mountain, down to the waterfall, and then walking back up. And sometimes I would have to like force myself to get out the door and just be like, I'm going to do this. I'm just going to start running anyway. But once I started, I don't think there was ever a time where I didn't finish my exercising. And not only that, I would come in feeling so much better, so much less tired, more energetic, just wonderful in every way. And the thing is, for me, it was just a battle of starting. And once I started, then the battle was pretty much won. What are the non-negotiable things in your life? What are the things, are there any things, and think especially on spiritual things here as well, but it can apply to some extent to both, things that you really want to do or that you know that you should be doing. And whatever those things are, we'd encourage each one of us in our own lives just to start them and see what can be done. The point is, it's worth it. If there's some things in your life that no need to be done, and God's putting something on your heart that this is the duty or this is something that needs to happen in my life, it's worth just doing it. Just starting and in God's strength, depending on God, to work with us, cooperate with, with God in living up to what we know to be right. So think about our priorities. 
what are, are your top priorities? What's the one non-negotiable thing in your life that's most important to you? And we know, we, we shouldn't really think about it, we realise that the first and highest duty of everyone, every Christian, is to know that we are abiding in Christ. It's our first and highest duty. That's the most important thing, to know that we are abiding in Christ. And we start our day like that, priority number one. And then think about what are your other priorities, what's really important to you. And make a list and, and focus on that, that list. And if some things don't make it to the priority list, maybe they're not so that important. And this can help us to have peace when we know we are doing the important things, the things that need to be done in our life. And these can apply to any duties in our path, including home duties, including like really small things that you think are like so insignificant. There's a verse that says that the little foxes spoil the vine. I think it says in, in, in Isaiah, somewhere like that. It's the little things that can actually rob you of your peace sometimes. So little things that, you know, this needs to be done, that needs to be done. Home duties can um, come into this. Here's this, this statement that says, when actuated by a high and noble desire to do others good, we can find true happiness in a faithful discharge of life's manifold duties. And this will bring more than an earthly reward. For every faithful, unselfish performance of duty is noticed by the angels and shines in the life record. Even washing dishes can give you great peace and satisfaction and joy. When you're helping someone else, and you feel good about it at the end, you know you've, you've, you've helped someone, and that's in your life record. The angels take note of every little faithful performance of duty. And also remember, it's not how much you do that really counts, it's how you do it. It's the love that you have in your heart. It's your motive and your attitude, that's what really counts. It's a labour of love that the angels delight to write down in the books of heaven. And unselfishness is what they delight to see. And I love this one on the thought of practical things. A faithful fulfillment of home duties, fulfilling the position you can occupy to the best advantage, be it ever so simple and humble, is truly elevating. This divine influence is needed. In this there is peace and sacred joy. You want more peace and sacred joy in your life? Amen. It possesses healing power. Do you want healing? It will secretly and insensibly soothe the wounds of the soul. Are you wounded? Or even the sufferings of the body. Peace of mind which comes from pure and holy motives and actions will give free and vigorous spring to all the organs of the body. Inward peace and a conscience void of offense toward God will quicken and invigorate the intellect as well. You want to have an invigorated intellect? Like Judas filled upon the tender plants, the will is then rightly directed and controlled and is more decided and yet free from perverseness. The meditations are pleasing because they are sanctified. The serenity of mind which you may possess will bless all with whom you associate. This peace and calmness will in time become natural and will reflect its precious rays upon all around you to be again reflected upon you. And I love this one because you know how in heaven we're told that our happiness will continually increase and that just sounds like an incredible thing. But 
there's something that can continually increase even here on earth. It's like a little foretaste. The more you taste his heavenly peace and quietude of mind, the more it will increase. It is an animated living pleasure which does not throw all the moral energies into a stupor, but awakens them to increase activity. Perfect peace is the attribute, an attribute of heaven which angels possess. Imagine having an attribute which angels possess. Perfect peace. And this is the peace that Christ promises to give to us. In the verse we read before, my peace give I unto you. What, a, what an incredibly beautiful thing. So unfulfilled duties can rob us of our peace. And just fulfillment of, of home duties, it says he can do so much for us in giving us peace of mind and fulfilling what we know we are here to do, we are here for. There's something else that can rob us of our peace, however. And this is a love of ourself. A love of self. And um, we all have a human heart. And this human heart naturally turns toward itself. That's the way of a sinful heart. But in doing that, when we focus on ourself, on my, let's say like this, my opinion is important. My opinion is really important. Is that going to rob you of your peace? Yeah? When you start talking to other people who have opinions too, what's going to happen? It's like, well, my opinion is important. I don't know about your opinion. And you're, all of a sudden, there's no peace. There's strife. There's contention. But when we put self aside, we go, my, my opinion is not important. Let's see what God's opinion is. Let's go to the Bible. And then we keep our peace. A few statements here. It is the love of self that destroys our peace. And I've seen this in my life. For example, I was recently in a successful situation and naturally I just wanted to tell somebody. And though I knew in this situation it would be boasting and that that would just be talking about myself and it wouldn't be appropriate, I ended up mentioning it to a friend. And the moment I did, the peace that I'd had just before, so pricelessly, like extra deep, I had real peace. And then the moment I said something to someone about that was boasting, instantly my peace was destroyed. And sometimes we kind of think that we have to protect ourselves and exalt ourselves and if we're praised and flattered and whatever, then that's going to make us feel good. But it's just like the furthest thing from the truth. The love of self and self-seeking just totally robs us of our peace. So we continue reading on. While self is alive, we stand ready continually to guard it from mortification and insult. But when we are dead and our life is hid with Christ in God, we shall not take neglects or slights to heart. We shall be deaf to reproach and blind to scorn and insult. Love suffers long and is kind. And this next one here I find particularly interesting. Have any of you ever seen discords or divisions? Like two hands, three hands. Alive, in other words. Okay. Well, that's really good. Well, I've seen maybe a few. And it says, love of self, pride and self-sufficiency lie at the foundation of the greatest trials and discords that have ever existed in the religious world. Full stop, all the ones of history, including today. They're all based on 
love of self, pride, and self-sufficiency. And if I stop and think about it, all the ones that I've seen, well, it's true. It's all based on pride and love of self and self-sufficiency. In other words, if our self is crucified each day, we would be such a harmonious group of people. We would just be like, truly, there wouldn't be so many trials, there wouldn't be discords, it would just be all harmony. Then there's another one, and it says, it is the love of self that brings unrest. When we are born from above, the same mind will be in us that was in Jesus, the mind that led him to humble himself, that we might be saved. Then we shall not be seeking the highest place. We shall desire to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn of him. Is that your desire? We shall understand that the value of our work does not consist in making a show and noise in the world and in being active and zealous in our own strength. The value of our work is in proportion to the impartation of the Holy Spirit. Trust in God brings holier qualities of mind so that in patience we may possess our souls. And the last one-liner here, love of self excludes the love of Christ. And this is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is a liberating gospel. Amen? It liberates us from ourselves. It liberates us from this selfishness that we have that only causes discord, strife, pain, suffering, sin. Amen? But the difficult part, which is easy and difficult at the same time, is bringing ourselves to Christ and yielding ourselves to Him. That that self can be crucified with Christ. This is a beautiful statement. In doing for others, good for others, doing for others, a sweet satisfaction will be experienced in inward peace, which will be a sufficient reward. You know, there is medicine in doing something to someone else, in living our life to serve, to bless, to help, to encourage, to strengthen, to edify. This was the life of Jesus Christ himself. And in doing that life, we experience an inward peace, a sweet satisfaction. So two things we've covered so far. What, what things are they that rob us of our peace? What was the first one? Unfulfilled duties. And what was the one we just talked about now? Love of self. The third thing that we're going to mention that can rob us of our peace is neglect of time with God. The scripture tells us that He is our peace. And by neglecting time with God, connecting with Him, like so that He becomes real to us and real to you, we end up robbed of our peace. We read, Words cannot describe the peace and joy possessed by Him who takes God at His word. Trials do not disturb Him. Slights do not vex Him. Self is crucified. Amen. Here is a peace and a joy which is beyond what words can describe. And what is it from? Taking God at his word. Have you experienced a peace and a joy which is beyond what words can describe? Well, there's an answer. Every one of us can experience that simply by taking God at his word. And the question is, do we make that word which can do so much for us, do we make that our study? As Jesus said when he was confronted with the devil in the wilderness, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by 
every word that comes from God's mouth. And what do we do when we read the word of God and we find it confronting to our ourself, our pride, our selfishness? We take God at his word and we, we let the word of God cut those things away from us. Then we find peace, we find rest. And what we need to do is, is just live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. If, it's, if God says it, I believe it, that settles it. And we make that word the rule of our life. And this was the, the hallmark of the Protestant Reformation through the Dark Ages, was the scripture and the scripture alone is our word and our foundation. And we are going to live by that word. So, are we living by that word and making our study? And this brings us to the next question. Is the Bible still chained? So it was chained at one point, almost literally, in the Dark Ages, when the Bible was suppressed. If you, like, had a Bible in the Dark Ages, this is, you know, what, the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries, around there, you would be killed if you just had a Bible or had any scriptures with you. But is it any different today? This year, Christians, as we know, around the world are celebrating the 500th year of the Reformation. The 500 years that supposedly have been the liberation of the Bible. But sometimes I wonder if the Bible is any less chained today than when it was chained on convent walls. Whether we actually read the Bible any more than in the Dark Ages. I was looking at some statistics here. And as we can see, by far, Protestant Christians read the Bible the most today. Catholics is less than 1% read their Bibles each day. Protestants, though, even though 24.1, that's an improvement, that's still less than a quarter of Protestant Christians who believe to be that they are based on the Bible, that the Bible is their everything. And less than a quarter of them claim to read the Bible every day. And when you look at young people, it gets even scarier. I was looking at some of the statistics of one of the highest, higher Bible-based religions that really claim the Bible is their everything. And with young people, 18.9% read their Bible daily. 12.9% read their Bible weekly, which makes a total of 31.8% who read their Bible at least once a week. That's less than a third of someone who claims their whole religion is based on the Bible. That's young people. Is the Bible still chained with those sorts of statistics? I was looking at some more statistics, and there seems to be a very direct correlation between the declining mental state of our world today and the declining biblical state. That as the Bible is being read less, so there's more depression, there's more everything else. And there's a definite correlation with the surveys that they've done between those who read the Bible more and who are hurting less. That's not really a surprise to us, but it just reaffirms what we know. And something else that may or may not be a surprise is that most Australians, when they get up in the morning, the very first thing they turn to is social media. And in contrast with this, though, I met a new friend recently, and she was telling me about her recent conversion experience. She was so hungry for the Word of God. She was one of the people that you can't really see in these statistics. She would get up at 7 or 8 in the morning and she'd read her Bible till 12. She was so hungry for the Word of God. The Bible was just totally changing her, and she was just in love with it. She's a young, she was a young lady. And 
you might think, yeah, so she had all this spare time and I'm studying and I've got a job and what do you reckon? Well, the thing is, I doubt that there was anybody in this room currently who was less, who is less busy now than what this particular girl was because she was preparing for some major medical exams and I'm pretty sure they were her final medical exams. And, you know, if we seek God first, God really does bless. His promises do come, come true even today. And she passed her medical exams. Today she's now a successful doctor. And she's a real inspiration and a testimony. The word of God was so precious to her. And the question for us each individually to ask ourselves is, is the Bible changed in our lives? Do we just make time for, you know, five minutes or just to read a promise? Or do we actually hunger and thirst for those words and let those words be the source of our study that we can have the peace and joy beyond words as well? And I hope that for any of us here who think, yeah, the Bible's changed in my life, I hope that we go away from here with it chained no longer. That we will take God at his word and find the peace and joy in that word, which is beyond measure. I love this next one. The principles taught in the schools of the prophet were the same that molded David's character and shaped his life. The word of God was his instructor. Through thy precepts, he said, I get understanding. I've inclined my heart to perform thy statutes. It was this that caused the Lord to pronounce David when in his youth he called him to the throne, a man after mine own heart. Now, I don't know about you in this room, but I kind of had read some of these things where there were men after God's own heart, and that I'm like, I wish that could be said about me. I wish I could, it was possible for me to be a man, well, a woman after God's own heart. And here, the reason this is one of my favorite statements now is because it tells us directly how to be a person after God's own heart. The key for David is a key that's within each one of our hands through the word, through the Bible, he got his understanding. That was his delight. And if we do what he did, if we make it our study, it our instructor, we here, each one of us, can be men and women after God's own heart. Doesn't that sound like the highest, most beautiful, most priceless, greatest, most noble honor you could ever be called? A man or a woman after God's own heart. So with this year being the 500th year anniversary of the Reformation, it makes it a really good time to consider, I think, to reconsider our own lives and whether the Bible's changed in our life or whether it's been freely released. It's time to celebrate, I reckon, the full release of our Bibles. This year, I've read the Bible more than I think I have in any previous year through some encouragement of some friends and... I never knew the Bible could do so much for me or mean so much to me. Like, I never knew that I could just be so hungry and I couldn't wait to read it some more. I never knew that it could be, it really is, everything you want it to be. If you want a friend, it will be your friend. If you want comfort, it will comfort you. If you want wisdom, it will be your wisdom. If you want understanding, it will give you understanding. Whatever you need, whatever you're wanting, it will be to you. It really will. So this year, let it be the year of release of the Bible in our lives. One way we can grow in our walk with God 
as well as studying the Bible and spending time in the Word, is communion with God in nature. And some of my earliest memories of when God became real, you know, God has to become real to each one of us. Your parents can't make God real to you. Your teachers, church, the only thing that can make God real to you is when you seek after him with your own heart. And in nature is a great place to do that. So I remember going out in nature and just watching the sunrise, listening to the birds and thinking about the creator who made all these things. And it draws you closer to God. It really does. When you can be still in the, in the works of God's hands, it draws you to the Creator. In the book Desire of Ages, which is all about the life of Jesus, you read, By communion with God in nature, the mind is uplifted and the heart finds rest. Do you want to find that rest? We do. And we don't just want to find it today, we want to find it tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, amen? We want to find that rest every day as we continue in this pilgrim life. And by communion with God in nature, we can find that rest. Don't you love that? And the question for each one of us, has your heart, has our hearts found that rest? Found rest? We're told that in every congregation there are ones who are hesitating, almost persuaded to be holy for God, and the decision is being made for time and for eternity. And I wonder, when I think about finding rest and finding release in our lives and peace, I wonder who today in this congregation is on that dividing line, making a decision for time and for eternity. If that is any one of you, let us make that choice today to make the decision for time and for eternity the decision that will bring us peace, the decision that we will never regret. We are in a conflict, friends. And if we, are, if we are laid back and like, so what? We'll be taken out. We need to be earnest and vigilant and put forward our best effort combined with the power of God. Satan knows that anyone who he can lead to neglect prayer and searching of the scriptures will be overcome by his attacks. Therefore he invents every possible device to engage and engross the mind. Do we see that today? Do we see something for everybody? So whether it be something to read or something to watch or something to do, do we see just a little bit of everything you can find? And it doesn't even matter. Half the things might be good things. Well, some of the things might be good things anyway. Satan doesn't really care what it is, as long as it distracts you and diverts you from prayer in the Bible, because he knows that anyone who he can lead to neglect it, through whatever means it takes, will be overcome by his attacks. And what's some of those things you think Satan invents to engross the mind? What would be some examples of those things? What was that one? Yeah, social media, it can do it. Movies, video games, they do, don't they? They engross the mind. They're captivating. Being a workaholic. Yeah. Yeah, even good things. That's right. Busyness. I think it's interesting, you know, they say, the Bible says that right up until they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving marriage, building and planting right up to the day that the flood came, at Noah's flood. They were doing common, ordinary things. 
They weren't actually doing anything wrong. It's not wrong to eat and drink, marry, give in marriage, build and plant. But when those things engross the mind, and we're just so focused on temporal things of this world, that we neglect heavenly things, that's all it takes. Satan is trying to engross our minds in many things. The common things of life, and a lot of media, particularly a lot of uh, technology these days, can, can engross the mind such to lead us away from God. But you know, when we feel least inclined to commune with God, when you feel like the least inclined to open your Bible, you just feel like, I don't feel like it, I don't feel like praying, I don't even feel like being a Christian. And you might feel like that sometimes. That's the very time when we should pray the most. When we should press through by faith the darkness and come out the other side victor and conqueror. And by so doing, by pressing through in prayer and by faith clinging to the word of God, we shall break Satan's snare. The clouds of darkness will disappear and we shall soon realize the sweet presence of Jesus. Amen? We are soldiers, brothers and sisters. We need to fight, not carnally, but with the word of God and with prayer and overcome. Prayer is simply communion with God. He is the fountain of wisdom, the source of strength and peace and happiness. And you can do that. Whether you're 10 years old, whether you're 90, we can commune directly with God. What a privilege. Talk to him. Listen to him speaking to us in the word and in nature. In other words, it's directly putting us in contact with the source of our peace. Amen. You know something I've noticed? All the greatest successes, the greatest victories, the people who have gone the furthest, done the most, been inspiring characters, people of nobility from the past right through the present, every one of them to me that I've seen have all started on their knees. And prayer is within each one of our reach just much as much as it was in their reach. In other words, that can be us just as much if we will use what they used. The Bible says that Elijah was a man with the same human nature as you and I, but he prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years in the land of Israel. Incredible what one man can do. But it makes the point of saying that he was like you and I. So what could God do through us when we pray, when we connect with him, when we choose to give up the world and live all for Christ? Through you, God can accomplish great purposes and great things. Never think that we are worthless. Like, God can do so much. There's so much potential in each one of us as we connect ourselves with our Savior, with God. And picture, if you will, the impression of what we can be, what we can be through God, what God can make us become. You know those statements that we all love and we all quote, that higher than the highest human thought is God's ideal for his children. Higher than you can imagine, basically. And we're told no limit to the usefulness of one who has great grand talents and whatever. He just puts self aside and makes room for the Holy Spirit in their life. Just imagine what we could be if we did that. We could be a specimen to the world of what God can do through humanity. And at the same time, a specimen to the universe of what people can become when they connect with Christ, the source of their peace, when they take Christ as their redeemer 
and find in him their peace. Peace that can be each one of ours today and for the rest of our lives and all eternity. Brothers and sisters, Satan is playing the game of life. The stakes in this game is your life and my life. And too many of us are playing the game with him. Too many of us are thinking we're smarter, thinking we've got it together, we can do this. Satan is working with all his skill and cunning to rob us of our heavenly peace, to rob us of our eternal life. We've got to realize this is serious. Eternity is at stake. And let's realize that we didn't have the wisdom, we didn't have the strength to play the game of life with Satan. It's not safe. There is no safety in the smallest part of the world being allowed in our life. If Satan just has the smallest toehold in our life, he will work on it, he will widen it, and before we know it, our life will be empty. Friends, let's flee today to Christ. Let's give up all our self-confidence, our self-sufficiency, and feel feel like we can do it. No, we can't. We can't. But when we flee to Christ and we, we, we confess to him our sin and our weakness and our great need of the saving blood of Jesus, he empowers us. Amen? He gives us the victory over Satan and over self. And we are no longer playing the game of life with Satan. We are securely in the hand of God. And there is nothing that anyone or Satan can do to pluck us out of God's hand. Yeah. And in that hand of God is peace and rest enjoy. The work of man's redemption, friends, will soon be ended. Soon the last prayer for sinners will have been offered, the last tears shed, the last warning given. Satan knows this, and he is making one last mighty effort to destroy the souls of men. We are each playing the game of life, and Satan is working with all his skill and cunning to rob us of every heavenly grace. So friends, today, choose peace. Choose life. Amen? Choose to give up self. Choose to follow the humble example of Jesus. And don't look to anyone. Don't look to us. Don't look to the person sitting next to you. Look to Christ. And if you keep your eyes on Christ, we will meet again. We will meet again. Yeah. If we don't meet on this earth, we'll meet again in the New Jerusalem. Amen? Amen? That land of perfect peace, of perfect joy, it is real, brothers and sisters. And it is coming soon. May we be there. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, today, Lord, we want to choose life, choose peace, choose sacrifice, choose to follow in the footsteps of of our divine leader, our commander, our saviour, and our friend. Father, we look at the life of your son, of Jesus, and we are just amazed at his love, his humility, his example, and we want to follow that. Though it cost us our life, Father, we are willing, and we ask you to come, take our pride, take our self, and lay our glory in the dust, and do that work which it is impossible for us to do for ourselves. Father, train us in the school of hardship and trial 
to develop characters that will be fit for the society of angels in heaven. And Father, may not one of us be found missing on that day when you call us home. May we be faithful to what we know till that day when we can rejoice together with all the redeemed by your side. Is our prayer, our desire, our choice. We thank you for honouring and hearing our prayer. Lord, we leave these things with you, trusting in you. We thank you for hearing and answering our prayers. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456 Our email address is radio at 3ABN That is radio at the number 3ABN All one word. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc. PO Box 752 Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. It's time for Balanced Living with Vicki Griffin. Hurried, worried, and buried. Finding balance in your busy world. I met Frank on a crowded business flight. As he lowered his breathless, oversized body into the narrow seat, wiping perspiration from his brow, he activated his smartphone with one hand while whisking his laptop out of its case with the other. Not yielding a second to take in his surroundings, get comfortable or relax, he hammered away on his laptop while making a rapid series of phone calls until the flight attendant forced a reprieve. Frank was a successful marketing executive, but his health was in shambles. He was overweight, had high blood pressure, and he suffered from insomnia. He had no close friends. His wife had left him. His life alternated from bouncing off the walls busy to inert and apathetic. He lived alone, eating mounds of ice cream, snack foods, and soda pop as he decompressed in front of the television in an attempt to stave off soaring stress levels and nagging loneliness. Frank's story illustrates the saying, we hurry, we worry, and we bury. So many of us are hooked on busy but are barren when it comes to life's most important priorities. We get a lot done, but because there's no balance, it's doing us in, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Overstimulation can lead to apathy and boredom. When stimulation comes at us from every side, we reach a point where we cannot respond with much depth to anything. Bombarded with so much that's exciting and demands our attention, we tend to shut down our attention to everything. 
The following three principles lay the foundation for achieving balance while striving for personal, family, and professional success. They're essential and achievable, whether you're a busy traveling professional, harried housewife, or stressed student. First, take time for your physical health. Nix the mindset that you're too busy to take care of your health. The following are essential tools for managing multiple priorities and busy schedules. They are not optional for busy people. Nutrition. Caffeine, sugar, and alcohol are stimulants that rob your nervous system of real energy. They lead to cravings, insomnia, and more fatigue. High-fiber fruits, vegetables, grains, nuts, and legumes provide nutrients and antioxidants that build brain and immune health, energize the nervous system, and lower stress. Restaurants, airports, and grocery stores now provide more healthful, quick options, such as whole-grain breads and pastas, delicious mixed-green salads and fruit plates, beans, fresh vegetables, trail mixes, and herbal teas. Keep a water bottle with you to remind you to drink water frequently. Irritability and fatigue can mean you need water. Exercise. Exercise reduces anxiety and fatigue and increases energy, both physical and mental. It improves mental focus, problem solving, and mood. A 10-minute walk can boost your mood for an hour. When traveling, use your time waiting at the airport for walking. After that long meeting or weary day of travel, you can unwind and renew your strength with a good walk or workout at the hotel exercise facility. At work, take the stairs. Use break time to take a spin around the block and enjoy fresh air and sunshine. Drink water and eat fresh fruit instead of chugging soda and downing candy bars. Rest. Chronic lack of sleep swamps your immune system with stress hormones, impairs blood sugar, and inhibits learning. It increases the risk for disease and depression and saps mental as well as physical energy. Quality deep sleep is linked to longer life, improved energy, mood, mental function, and performance. It also lowers the risk for obesity, diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, cancer, and many stress-related disorders. Caffeine, high-fat and sugar foods, alcohol, late-night eating, holding grudges, and a lack of exercise all contribute to poor quality sleep. Slowing your evening pace signals your body and your brain that it's time to tone down, rest, and revitalize for a new day. Take time for your mental and spiritual health. Zoning out in front of the TV or internet for hours saps energy and increases fatigue and tension. Mentally refreshing diversions, though, are like mini vacations for the brain. These include relaxing hobbies, recreation, social time, learning new tasks, and volunteering. In addition, spiritual health is at the center of a balanced lifestyle. It's important to take time to submit our priorities to God. He wants us to trust Him to guide us safely through life's busy challenges. Strengthen your spiritual life by connecting with God through prayer, reading the Bible, 
and reading inspirational books. Pare down or you'll wear down. When we are crazy busy and about to snap, the inevitable result is inefficiency, irritability, ill health, and imbalance. There are many good things to do, but sometimes doing good things can crowd out what is best. Focus on your most important priorities. Jesus encouraged his work-worn disciples, come apart to a quiet spot and rest for a while. For there were many coming and going, and they could not get time even to eat. Mark six thirty one. At creation, God knew that we would need special time for rest, friendship, and time with Him. So He set aside a special day for that purpose. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord. In it you shall do no work. Exodus 20, 8-10 God cares about your schedule. He wants you to rest physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. He invites you to enter into His rest. We all have multiple roles and responsibilities, including work, spousal, parenting, personal, church, and community. Each role can be fulfilling and energizing when kept in balance. Will you take that step today and build more balance, strength, confidence, and perseverance into your life tomorrow? A balanced life is shaped one day at a time, not by chance, but by choice. You've been listening to Balanced Living, presented by Vicki Griffin. The parable of the workers in the vineyard brings us to the end of the day, to the coming of the Lord, but it concludes with an unexpected twist, as Christ's parables often do. When those who were hired first received the same as those who were hired last, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Matthew 20, 11 to 15. 